Good morning. I'm Brian Kelly, and this is my wife, Esperanza, and we've been part of TC since uh, 2003. Our scripture reading today is from 1 John, chapter 3, verses 11, 24, New International Version. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one, and murders his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and we receive from him anything we ask, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command— to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us, the word of the Lord. Thank you. morning. Thank you so much, Brian and Espy. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me on this beautiful July long weekend. It has now stopped raining. Thank you, Brian Espy, for reading that passage with us. Um, let's just open with a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that teaches us who you are and who we are. Help us to have open hearts to receive your spirit this morning. Lead us in truth and give us an abiding love for one another. Amen. Well, my name is Jenna Hyron, and I'm your family director here at TCC, and I have the pleasure of spending a lot of time with some of the youngest members of our congregation on Sunday mornings. So in preparation for this message, I asked our kids a question last week. I asked them, what do your parents do for a living? I was just curious, and then the results were outstanding. So if you, these are some demographics for our church. So if you're new here today and you're wondering who you sit amidst, um, this is a great time to just pull out a pen and paper and take some notes. So the number one profession of our congregation is hands down. Are you ready for it? Talking on the phone. <laughs> now that was followed up by very close number two, staring at a computer all day. 
Okay, but of course, we have a very diverse group of people here, so let me give you some of the other professions described by our kids when asked, what do your parents do for a living? My mom sends stuff through the internet. My dad pushes stuff around on a dolly. My mom cuts off people's hair. Yikes. My dad melts stuff. He makes new stuff. He uses a lot of fire and stuff. My dad cleans up other people's messes. My mom teaches, to which I said, oh, who does she teach? Eh, just a bunch of hooligans. I don't think she knows them very well. (laughs) And finally, what do your parents do for a living? I'm not really sure my parents do anything for a living. They told us that they're working, but my sister and I see them all the time, and they're just sitting outside having coffee. So these are so fun, right? It's so fun to see things from a kid's perspective, and none of us judge them, right? We don't take offense to these things. These are just kids. And we know that they don't have any idea, really, what we're talking about. They don't know what we do every day because they've never experienced it before. Our kids don't send emails all day or type up business proposals or lead meetings. They don't do trades work. And so how could they possibly describe what it is that we do with our careers all day? So we're continuing our series today. It's called Certainty in Confusing Times as we walk through the book of 1 John. So today I'm going to be talking specifically about love, Christian love as described in Scripture. And John, in this little epistle, he lays out some very specific teachings on the topic of loving one another. But... Before you roll your eyes at me and go, oh, another sermon on love, I need you to take on the perspective of this early church that really wouldn't have been that different than our kids upstairs. See, when John teaches on Christian love, he's talking to people who really don't understand and have never experienced what he's talking about. Because... Until Christ came and demonstrated real love to the world, we were only ever grasping at straws. Most of the people in this early church that John was writing to had a really narrow and somewhat skewed view of love because they had only ever experienced love that the world gives, which is completely different than the love of Christ. And maybe that's some of us here today, too. Maybe without even realizing it, we've been taking our own experiences of love in the world and trying to use that to make sense of what Jesus is talking about. So in today's text, we're delving into some instructions from John. This is the disciple that Jesus loved, the author of the Gospel of John. And John is trying to instruct this church on what genuine Christianity looks and feels like. And the heart of that authentic Christianity is love. So you can follow along with me. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to get started. In these first few verses, we're starting in verse 11 to verse 15, John tells us that authentic Christians will love while the world will hate. And what we see is John is using a teaching model that we see Jesus employ in his teaching style as well. And that's to start with a counterpoint. John starts by telling us what love is not. 
When Jesus teaches on prayer, he uses a similar approach. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. And in verse 6, but when you pray, go to your room, close the door, pray to the Father who's unseen. So maybe at some point you use the same technique of instructions, telling someone what not to do in order to better illustrate what should be done, and that's exactly what John is doing. So verse 12, John says, do not be like Cain. Now John is referring here to a familiar story from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. He's referring to a story of two brothers, the sons of Adam and Eve, who both present an offering to God. In Genesis 4-2, we learn that Abel kept flocks while Cain worked the soil. These are two very different brothers. God looks with favor on Abel's offering and not Cain's, which leaves Cain envious and angry. Resentment starts to take root in his heart. So God, in his great love for both of these young men, he warns Cain. He says sin is crouching at his door. And he tells him if he does what's right, if Cain does what's right, he'll be accepted. But Cain, who's burning with envy and anger, he decides to destroy his brother instead. So John tells us, do not be like Cain. John is giving an illustration of what love is not. John uses the word murder four times in these first verses. He's emphasizing that the many forms of sin that we can commit against our brothers and sisters will all result in the same thing, both for them and for us, murder and ultimately death. And see, this is what the world does. It hates. It murders. This leads to death. Over and over, we have to realize that sin leads to death. There is no other option, and there's no middle ground. The type of death that John is talking about is not the death of our bodies. He's talking about eternal consequences of sin. The death of being separated forever from God and everything that's good. See, ironically, most of us actually apply the word love to what John is referring to as hate. Love of the world, it's self-serving and it has to be provoked. It's the kind of love that says, I will love you as long as it's required of me or convenient for me or going to be reciprocated back to me. See, John is telling these early believers that this is not love at all. What these believers, and maybe what many of us today experience in the world without Christ, is not love. This is actually worldly. And God looks at it as if it's hate that leads to murder and ultimately death. Whew. So you're probably thinking, well, that's really awful. Thank goodness none of us are murderers. And see, in that early church who received this letter, they might have felt exactly the same way. They might have been like, whoa, thanks, John. We haven't got any murderers here, so we're okay. But were they? Are we? See, Jesus taught this message first, and John is simply restating it. Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, 
verses 21 to 22. This is ESV. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. We can all, we can all agree with that. But then he says, but I say to you, anyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. See, it wasn't the killing that took place in the field where Cain took his brother Abel. The murder started in his heart. It started with envy and anger and bitterness. And that's what John is warning us about here. John is telling us that this kind of self-serving, pretend love, like what Cain had for his brother, it has no place in the Christian life. He's saying that the difference between the world and the Christians should be the love that they share for one another. But hate, it sometimes, it seeps. It seeps into our lives just like Cain, and sometimes we refuse to see it for what it is. Are there brothers and sisters that you hold bitterness toward but don't want to acknowledge it as hate? Is it that person who just stole your parking space when you came into church? Is it the neighbor who never picks up their front yard? Or what about the colleagues that don't want to pull their own weight at work? What about the husband who endlessly misses dinner because he has to work late? Or what about the parents who are always putting limits on your phone usage? See, the world's self-seeking, pretend love, it's going to tell you that you're being loving if you just hold your tongue or don't post about it on social media. But the resentment in our heart, it remains. John says that we can't have this bitterness and this anger in our lives. It only leads to death. See, John is talking to us. What can we do with that? So, friends, we've got to hold on to the promise that God made to Cain. God told Cain to do what's right, and you will be what? You will be accepted. And that promise is for us too. You will be accepted. We will be accepted when we desire to release that resentment in our hearts. First John 1 John 1.9, this is an ESV. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and he's just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And friends, it's that very desire in our hearts to confess and to be forgiven, this is the sign of the Spirit's sanctification in our lives. When we're able to release that resentment in our hearts to God and allow God to deal with those hurts on our behalf, that is what Christians will look like. John says authentic Christians are going to love while the world will hate. So after giving his instructions on what genuine Christian love is not, John uses the next three verses to outline what Christian love is. And John starts in verse 16. He says, this is how we will know what love is. Now his instruction becomes very direct as he points us to Christ's example on the cross. 
It's important here to recognize that this is a different type of death than the death that we were talking about in the previous verses. The death of Christ died on the cross was not an eternal death. It was a sacrificial death of the body, but not the spirit. Jesus' death on the cross was a death that led to life, and the contrast is described beautifully in Romans 5.17. This is the New Living Translation. It says, For the sin of one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. That's the eternal death. But even greater, it goes on, is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it live in triumph over sin and death through one man, Jesus Christ. That's the eternal life. So this, this is the high calling of the Christian life. John says that authentic Christians will be self-sacrificing. See, John is telling us that love is going to come at a cost. It came at a great cost for God, and it will come as a great cost for us. In Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth and all living things in chapter 1. Chapter 1. And by chapter 3, what do we read about already? The fall of humanity. Humans turn away from God already in chapter 3. But that didn't come as a surprise to an all-knowing, all-powerful creator God. See, God is omniscient. He has a perfect knowledge, perfect, a perfect knowledge of all things in the past, all things now in the present, and all things to come in the future, a perfect knowledge. See, we have to remember that from the very beginning of time, God knew that friendship with humans would come at the cost of his own son. And yet, God so loved us that he created us anyway. From the beginning of time, God knew that love would come at the cost of Jesus' life. And so it is for us as Christians, little Christs, that love will also have a cost. It does require us to do something. So Eugene Peterson, he summarizes James, this is James chapter 4, verses 14 to 17. He says it this way. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but you never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, if you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved, and you say to that friend, good morning, be filled in Christ, be clothed in Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then you walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup, where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God actions is outrageous nonsense? See, love, it's going to require us to act in ways that the world is going to view as strange and remarkable. John says that we're going to lay down our lives 
for our brothers and sisters. We will choose to be wronged for our brothers and sisters. We'll choose to give more than we keep for our brothers and sisters. Mark Buchanan, in his book, Hidden in Plain Sight, he refers to this kind of love as an unprovoked love. So here we go, a type of love that wasn't required of us. It wasn't convenient for us. It wasn't reciprocated back to us. And yet we love. This is the opposite of the worldly pretend love that we just talked about. And this is such a high calling. It's so high, in fact, that we can hardly imagine living like that. We can actually sometimes feel offended by the very thought of it. Like our pride and our ego kind of start to swell up and we're like, I don't deserve that kind of lifestyle. I've worked hard for this. I have a reputation. Whatever it is that allows us to justify not giving to others the way that Christ himself gave himself to us. So what does it look like for us to be self-sacrificing? Maybe it's just offering a prayer of forgiveness and safe travel when someone cuts you off in traffic. Maybe it's making time for the phone calls to family members that are hard to talk to. The ones that you ran out of conversation starters ages ago. Maybe it's making good on your word. It's remembering to text your parents when you get where you're going, even if your friends think it's lame. Maybe it's giving a ride home to the person who doesn't live anywhere near you but really needs a ride. See, John, he's telling us that this is a sign. It's a sign of God's sanctifying work in us. This isn't behavior correction. It's heart transformation taking place by the power of the Spirit. See, these are the sacrifices we're going to want to make. Believe that? We're going to want to make these sacrifices because we will understand that Christ made the bigger and the greater sacrifice for us. John teaches that authentic Christians will be self-sacrificing. So far in John's teaching, he's told us what love does not look like. Then he told us what love will look like through action. And he finishes this little teaching on the internal transformation that takes place in authentic Christian. John tells us that there are spiritual realities that we can look forward to. In Romans, Paul tells us that the sacrificial living that we experience now is nothing compared to the glory of God revealed in us. See, in Matthew, Jesus tells us that God will reward us, that's 6 verse 4, and that he delights in giving us good gifts, that's 7 verse 11. So John is now going to list out for us what we can anticipate as the spiritual rewards of the transforming work that God is doing within us. 
So in verse 21, John says that we can expect a reward of having confidence before God. He's saying that we can come before God, the creator, with a clear conscience, knowing that any shame, guilt, fear, or disappointment that we have in ourselves or others, it's going to be fully justified through Jesus Christ. So the place I most often see this confidence is in our kids. Do any of you know a five-year-old who hesitates before running to mom and dad for comfort? I don't. No, I don't. Our TCC preschoolers, if you haven't been around a preschooler for a while, today is your day. Watch this happen with me. I guarantee it will. It's our TCC preschoolers rushing headfirst to their parents, and they represent the type of confidence that we will have before our Heavenly Father. So you know what it looks like? It's that headlong, arms windmilling, legs sprawling sprint into the arms of a God who knows you completely and loves you entirely. Confidence. That's the confidence we'll have before God. And then in verse 22, John says that we can expect that whatever we ask, we receive. He's saying a lot there. But John is actually repeating the words that Jesus first taught. See, Jesus, in Matthew 21, verse 22, he says, If you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer. John is simply reminding these Christians that when we submit ourselves to have the same heart and the same mind as Christ, we will be so perfectly aligned with the will of God that our prayers will constantly be answered because we will be praying the will of the Father. This is our reward. Not that our will be done, but that the will of the Father becomes our own. And in verse 24, John says that we will have the reward of abiding in God and God abiding in us. The Greek word abide means to stay or to remain. And John is telling us that we can constantly be with God, continually connected to him. This is the very experience that was lost when humans left the presence of the Lord in the garden. See, God has restored this abiding through the giving of his Holy Spirit. And so John is restoring hope to this church He's telling them that they can be filled with hope, knowing that they can experience living continually in God's presence through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this is what we have to wrap our minds around. This is a hard thing in our day and culture. Friends, the Holy Spirit is not a feeling. It's not a fictitious illusion. And the Holy Spirit is not a mental state of mind. The Holy Spirit is the creator God living within us, acting through us, and interceding for us to the Father. 
And John is reminding these Christians that they will recognize genuine Christianity by the unmistakable abiding presence of that Holy Spirit. So in these short few verses, John has moved drastically from talking about sin and death and sacrifice to pouring hope into his readers about the promises of life with God. He's telling them that this is what they should be experiencing. This is the experience that they need to anticipate, to look forward to in their fellow believers. See, the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit is the greatest reward and the most significant litmus test of genuine believers of God. And the hope that John promises to this church is the same hope that we have today. Authentic Christians will receive spiritual rewards. So when John lays out these promises and he expands on these spiritual rewards, what does that do to you? Are these the rewards that get you excited? Or do you find yourself kind of questioning whether or not you want those things? See, in Dr. Seuss, the Lorax has a really great line when he's asked the question, which way does the tree fall? To which he answers, whichever way it leans. So in what direction are you leaning these days? What rewards are you looking for? Is it the promotion to the corner office? Is it a bigger and fancier house? What about a more attractive body or a larger social circle? See, there's nothing wrong with these goals in and of themselves. But these goals, they can be distracting. And if we take our eyes off Christ, we can quickly lose sight of the rewards that Christ promises us. And we can find ourselves instead with hands clenched around worldly things that are going to crumble, they're going to fade, they're going to disappoint us. So let's be reminded this morning, just like the early church, that these are the rewards worth seeking. What God offers us is good, it's trustworthy, it's eternal. And these rewards are available to everyone, ready? To everyone, of every class, of every race, of every culture, of every nation, of every generation until Christ returns. See, Jesus gave us this promise. He says that everyone, Jesus said, everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks will find, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. All of these spiritual rewards, they're for you. They are for us. We just have to want them, because authentic Christians will receive spiritual rewards. So maybe the prayer that we need to pray is, Lord, help us to want this. Lord, help us to want what you are freely offering us. 
So in these 13 verses, John has reiterated so clearly the teachings that Jesus gave. And by doing so, he brings clarity and he brings focus to what Christian love should be. Christian love contrasts the hate of the world. It requires sacrifice and it's steeped in God-given spiritual reward. So John challenges us to throw off any envy or bitterness that we might have towards one another. He tells us instead to go out of our way to show kindness and compassion to our neighbors. And finally, John encourages us with the promise of the Holy Spirit restoring our right relationship with the Father. And so I'll close with this today. Years ago, I read a business development book, and the thing that stuck with me the most from the book was the title. It was called, You Can't Teach a Kid to Ride a Bike at a Seminar. You Can't Teach a Kid to Ride a Bike at a Seminar. And the point of the title was to say that some things we just need to learn through real-life experiences, just trial and error, on-the-ground, on-the-job training. It's the reason why our kids can't articulate what it is that we do for a living, even though they hear about it every day at the dinner table, right? So if I could write a new title for this message today, it would be that you can't teach Christians to love through a sermon. I mean, I really hope it helped. I really do. But at the end of the day, church, if we're going to love one another, we need to get out there and to do it. See, we actually need to experience it from each other. We need to receive it. We need to feel it. And then we need to pass it along. We need to know the genuine love from Christ so that we can compare it to all of the pretend love, the counterfeits, of what the world calls love. So this week, as summer leads us into new rhythms and a new pace, my prayer for you is that you find a place to put all of this into practice. So maybe it's getting into a prayer closet and it's to trust God to do justice on the hurt that others have caused you. Don't let it fester Don't let it fester into hate. Lead by example in your family, laying down your own priorities for the priorities of one another. And ask God to give you the eyes to see his loving, abiding presence in your life. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, You are good. Your will is perfect. Father, your word is true. Help us as a community to want to love one another the way that you have taught us. Help us to see each other as precious and loved sons and daughters of the King. Amen.